Welcome back to Therapy Insiders Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. All right, we got a fun episode for you today. Also incredibly information-packed. We went back to a topic we haven't talked about in a while, which is pelvic health. Now, calm down. Don't get don't get nervous. This is not just all pelvic health, even though it's, it's actually a fairly interesting topic. Shout out, Pelvic Mafia. Our guest, Tracy Sher, is an interesting story because Tracy comes from a business background or business foreground because she runs a cash-based practice. So we got to hear her story. And after her episode with Jeff Moore about work-life balance, uh, we had a lot of inquiries about a woman's perspective on work-life balance. So I asked Tracy about that and I asked her, why am I so uncomfortable even differentiating men and women on work-life balance? Felt a little off for me. So Tracy had a ton of insight and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. As always, let us know what you think after you're done listening. We hope to have a pretty good discussion after this one. And now, let's hear a word from our sponsor. You know we're big fans of business here at Therapy Insiders and UpDoc Media. That's why I'm incredibly excited to attend and present with my partner, Dr. Ben Fung, at Ascend Business Summit in Fort Worth, Texas on September 9th and 10th. Stick around to the end of this episode where I share a little bit more information about the Ascend Business Summit as well as a special discount code for you, our listeners, just because, well, you're awesome for $100 off of your tickets. All right, now let's get into this episode of Therapy Insiders Podcast with guest Tracy Share. to Therapy Insiders Podcast. Dr. Gene Shirakarad here with Dr. Joe Palmer. Joe, how you doing, man? Good, Gene. How are you? Pretty good. Urson can't be joining us or won't be joining us. He's uh, he's dealing with some some stomach things, or, or so he says, but uh, he's a he's a fairly trustworthy guy. I'll, I'll believe him. Yeah, you don't you don't want to ask for proof there, Gene. I don't want to ask for proof, and I definitely don't want that bad juju coming my way, so we're, we're going to go with it. So who do we have on? Who do we have on? We ha- we have somebody on that is um, is bringing us back into a world that that we haven't really been in in a while since um, since Sandy Hilton and a little bit with Ann Wendell. Um, we're going back to pelvic health, but Joe, but this is not just pelvic health because she well versed in business and will give us an opportunity to get a work-life balance perspective from from a woman because we had a lot of um and that that just I don't know that just sounds weird like I have I don't know why it sounds weird to me that I even have to classify it from a woman's perspective or from a men's perspective I don't know maybe because I don't say that very often but it just feels odd saying it but we had a lot of people request that perspective after we did the Jeff Moore podcast we get a lot of hate Um, mail on that one we got no hate mail on okay, that one. We, we got a lot of interesting things, but we did get a lot of, we want a, a woman's perspective from it. Um, so we got uh, Tracy Cher on today to to kind of uh, delve into that world. So Trace, thanks for taking the time and um, looking forward to chatting with you. 
thanks for having me on. Why, why is it, why is it that I feel that it's, it's so weird for me to say from a woman's perspective that I even have to qualify that, that, that you're a woman, not just, a, just another person's perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because we we want to say that there's full equality and those sorts of things. So this becomes almost a taboo subject right away, right? That we're you're already partitioning it off into women and men. But I think there's just in our culture still, as much as we don't want to say it, there's probably still an inherent type of uh, discussion that happens because of some inequalities, maybe. But we usually don't talk about it. So you're actually bringing something to the forefront. We actually talked at this about this at. PPS this last year uh, in Orlando, there was a, a group of us that met about women's leadership, and it was actually a big topic that came up. Is that there were there were men that said, "Well, there are women who are doing leadership roles, but are concerned about also taking care of kids and some of the other home roles that they have." And we said we want to say that it's equal, but if you look at some of the research, I think coming out of Harvard and some other places, it turns out that still women account for a lot of the other household chores and, and child care, even though it should technically at this point, we say it should be more equal. We still see that women are concerned about that in terms of time with work as well as home, home life balance. Yeah. And we'll definitely get on that home, home work balance. It's, 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 it's somewhat fascinating and, and mostly sad that, um, uh, being so focused on evidence-based practice and evidence in general in healthcare, that there, there's so much evidence that that women are as good, if not better, leaders and business minds. Um, that, that people do research on that, and, it, it, and it's very clear that that's the case. And um, I, I, I personally, I just don't get why there's that disconnect. Having worked with really smart women and women in leadership positions, and interviewed obviously the Heidi Janengas, the Sandy Hildens, um, the Ann and Wendells that have been on the podcast, um, and I'm sure I'm, I'm leaving a bunch out as well it's it's just it's, it's just mind-boggling maybe because because we're 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 around such such super smart and 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 motivated women all the time yes i just don't get it but there's plenty that i don't get in the world and um such as pelvic health which is uh, which is why we have you on um how about how about a a, a quick share of your story of how you came about where, where you started your physical therapy journey at and, and why, why pelvic health? Sure. Uh, so I went to Emory University in Atlanta for undergrad and I was quite certain I was going to do something in the medical field and I didn't know if it was going to be medicine itself or physical therapy and my actual background is that my sister has cerebral palsy and I was always uh, she's 11 years younger than me so I did a lot of her therapy and physical therapy just spoke to me in general and I was always interested in in the brain and understanding basically based on my sister's circumstance and then I transferred that on to volunteering with uh, Parkinson's and other situations that were more neuro based in terms of conditions. So at some point I decided to do physical therapy and had no idea I would be doing pelvic health ever in my, in my lifetime. Um, my undergrad I feel like most was, people say that most right? people, I, I don't think I've heard it. Anyone say, you know what? I went gung ho from the get go <laughs> wanting to be in pelvic health. Well, on, on a side note, actually I am seeing that now, um, students coming into school saying I want to go to PT school and do women's health. But I, I, this is something new that I'm now seeing, you know, 16, 17 years later, this was not the case when I was in school at all. I would say. Um, well, that speaks a lot to the, to the hashtag Pelic Mafia shout out, what, what you've done 
to to kind of grow the awareness and and take away a lot of the taboo. Thank you. I like to think that that we've really done a lot of educating and and making awareness, you know, a part of education. And so what happened is I actually um, did my undergrad in psychology with a concentration in neuropsych, and I was really into the neural parts of of treatment and conditions and behavior. And so when I went to PT school, I was certain that I was going to do something in, in orthopedics. I had a strong uh, athletic background. And as many of, of us do that have orthopedics in our professional lives, and I thought, or I was going to do something in ortho, uh, in neuro. And what happened was one of the, the hallmark stories I share with patients, because they of, often say, why are you doing what you're doing? You know, as I'm doing something quite invasive to them, they say, why, why are you doing this? How did you get into this. And I often say a story about how when I was in PT school up at Northwestern in Chicago, we were shown this video of someone putting on a glove and going into someone's anal canal. And I, I, I hit my friend next to me and I said, mark my words, I will never, ever be doing this kind of therapy ever. I don't even know what that is, but I will never do that. So then I go through PT school, the rest of it, and it turns out that um, we had an opportunity to do a women's health elective, and I thought that was interesting, and I went ahead and did that. And then I had this great opportunity to come back to Florida, where I'm from. I was in Chicago and came back here as a clinical, and it was touted as being orthopedics and women's health. So I thought, thought this is great. I'll do some orthopedics. I'll, I'll treat some women. I didn't really even know what it entailed at all. And the first patient, the first first day I got there, uh, my clinical instructor said, go ahead and put on some gloves. You're going to do a vaginal exam. And that was my, uh, truly my entry, pun, pun, no pun intended, Ooh, I suppose. Well done. That, well thank done. you. Ba-dum-ba-dum. That was my entry into women's health. And the reason why, I mean, it was obviously shocking at the time. I didn't even know that physical therapists did that specifically or what that involved. And my first exposure in school obviously was not um, something that I was excited about either. But um, what happened was every single patient I saw said a similar thing, which is you're the first person to listen to me about this problem. You're the first person to take this seriously. You found something, you touched something that no one else has even looked for before. You know, and, and these people had gone to 10 different physicians. And so I thought, here I am a student in women's health. And I couldn't believe that I was the first person to discover that they had an obturator internist problem, for example. And so it was quite powerful. And I just realized this was an underserved population. And I really was fascinated because it, it actually was quite challenging and complex. And I didn't find it easy at all. And the orthopedic part of it was great because my other instructors were from Australia and Denmark and some really great places that um, were strong with manual therapy. So I learned excellent manual therapy techniques and orthopedics, but I was actually more challenged by women's health and pelvic health um, complex cases. So that's, and from then moving forward, I ended up um, moving specifically to Houston, Texas to take a job in women's, uh, women's health and pelvic health at Women's Hospital of Texas. So I could work with a mentor there. So that, so that was about 16 going on almost 17 years ago. Wow. Would you, um, would you say there's a stronger emphasis on the biopsychosocial approach with, with women's health and pelvic health? I feel like when, when, you're, when you're dealing with such personal space and you have to really connect really quickly because you're, you're dealing with situations and, and you're touching structures that are not typical, like you said, for physical therapy. But for most 
healthcare to, to such an extent? Do you feel like you really you really break down those barriers and really really live in the biopsychosocial world more than maybe? typical orthopedics or manual therapy? Yeah, I think that's a great question because it touches on a lot of what I teach now. I teach courses and one of the things is that we we definitely touch on a lot of the psychological components, psychosocial components, and I think that's a huge part of someone that's really good with women's health or pelvic health. And I keep using those interchangeably because some people only do women's health, but really technically if you're doing anything in the pelvic region, we do end up treating a lot of men. So I like to make sure I include pelvic health in that discussion. Um, but anyway, so what happens is in women's health and pelvic health, we end up really having to focus on that psychosocial part of it uh, because you are trying to relate to so, so many personal things. But here's the interesting part or the, the curiosity I've had and, and why I teach what I do is that we still tend to see therapists who are very good at listening, but then they basically go and start to almost, um, how do I say, like uh, make the, the bio the only part. So they'll mm-hmm. say, I'm going to work on those trigger points. We're going to continue to keep working on your trigger points. And what I'm trying to do in my education is explain that the biopsychosocial has, happens along the whole continuum of care. It's not just the initial intake, and then you go right into just treating manual, and you forget about all of the other stuff. And I think that that's sometimes still an issue along, across all physical therapy, but I also see that in, in pelvic health as well. I hope I'm making that clear that it's interesting that they can be the therapist can be really good at the intake and the psychological components, but then we tend to still sometimes go right to um, much more of a bio only approach. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. I think that's that's actually uh, I'm surprised that that hasn't been brought up before when we've talked about this. Yeah, but it's, it's easier, right? I mean, that's just... oh man, it's so easy. <laughs> It's autopilot, right? Like you, you do the hard work up front to get the buy-in with the patient to make that connection. And then it's like, okay, now I just need to fix the problem now that they've bought in. Right. And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but what happened with my practice and why I did what I did with it is I spend longer time with them and I've incorporated, I mean, I've made a huge shift to a biopsychosocial uh, component and how I, or basically a theory and, and practice of what I do. And what I notice is that when I see therapists who've seen other, I see sometimes patients who've seen five different therapists from all over the country. And I think, well, certainly I'm not, I don't have magic skills. I'm not doing anything magic. So why are they now seeing me? And what I find is that they say within a few visits, they feel so much better. And and again, I don't think that I'm something magical, but what I find is because I integrate the whole biopsychosocial across the whole treatment of all of their treatments, it makes a huge difference as opposed to them saying, wow, they just, you know, the other therapist was just poking on my same trigger points for the last two years. So it really is an integration and it is a lot harder, but in the end you can get someone quick, better, quicker. So it's, it's a, it's a good trade-off. What would you say? What would you say? How do you go about developing that that more balanced approach? Like you can't you can't forget about bio. You can't you can't forget about the psycho, and you can't forget about the social. That they it's it's a continuum that they work together. And we touched on this a little bit on the last podcast. But how how do you integrate it? Is it active listening? Is it emotional interviewing? Is it just always being present? What does it entail to be good at that? 
Yeah, so I think it's some some things are probably inherent that each person is a little bit stronger at doing. So I tend to be, I actually am basically doing, I do sexual counseling as well, and I'm completing a full certification in that. So I do a lot of, I've learned a lot of counseling techniques. I'm very strong on, you know, with the psychology background as well. So for me, I think I am very strong on just when I first see a patient validating what they have going on, asking them the right questions, making them feel like their trip to see me was worth it and, and really getting that buy-in, but genuinely not just, you know, to quickly make a sale or to make them come back again. It really, I really, really care about these patients and I feel like they haven't been heard before in many cases. So I think that's the part, but then I think the way you have to integrate it is I'm aware of the science and I understand that when I'm even touching a patient, that's already an input. We're already potentially making a neural change. It's not just the technique. So what happens is what's, and this is what I try to teach in courses is that some of the, the courses are all about, Hey guys, do this technique. If you do this mobilization exactly correctly, that patient will feel better. I don't have that mindset. I believe from the minute you touch them or talk to them, you're already starting your process. And then what I tell the patient is we're going to try some different techniques to see if we can help you. And we'll figure out something that seems to work best for you. And then something that you can continue at home. So I already involve them early in the process of saying, I'm a facilitator and I'm going to help you, but we're also going to work together on this. And I start that very early on, even on the first visit. So I'm not starting it out by saying, let me go ahead and work on all your trigger points. I'm going to look at your alignment. I'm going to fix you. And then you're going to be better in three visits because I feel like that becomes, becomes so much of just someone doing something to you and already gives them the mindset that they're going to come in passively. So I start that very early on and the language I use is, is very in line, is all in line with that. So you move away from kind of being a mechanic to a guide to somebody that they can trust and build a relationship with versus just drop their car off their, their bodies off and leave at that. Right. And, and, you know, a lot of therapists say, Oh, I already do that. But then when we go in the courses, I really challenge them and I'll say, okay, so how, what would you say to this patient? And they'll say, okay, I'll tell them I'm going to work. I'm going to do this myofascial technique that'll really help up break up adhesions. And I'll do this trigger point that'll do that. And I explain that you could do those same looking techniques. I could do something that looks exactly the same, but the language I'm telling the patient and the thought process behind it is different. So I'm not thinking I'm breaking up adhesions. I'm thinking I'm in the area that they said is painful. I'm touching them. I'm giving them an input there. I'm moving the tissue, providing this peripheral input. And, and I'm telling them that it's so good that we can at least start moving this tissue some. It'll help your whole system. You, you may no, notice that you can move better. So the language I use and the, 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 the techniques may look similar, but the language I'm using and what I'm thinking are very different than what I hear sometimes from therapists that and, and this is the distinction. I think that's helped a lot. How long did, do you feel like it took you to develop a comfort level or proficiency with, with that? Well, I think it's, I think it's a, that's a great question because it's something that I've worked really hard at in the sense that I always had the, I think the psychosocial part quite well. Um, I've had some funny stories that made me realize quickly I needed to get strong at that because especially in pelvic health, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell some of these stories, but um, of my, one of my first patients, I was, you know, a young therapist at Women's Hospital of Texas 
and I'll try not to use all the language she used, but this patient, this patient was probably about 70 and she was one of my first patients and she had some anal rectal pain and she essentially said, I feel like I've been effed up the ass. And I was like, whoa, that's okay. And so descriptive. it was extremely descriptive. And I was thinking to myself, okay, that means maybe she's, you know, all these thoughts are going through my head. Maybe she's had that done. I don't know. Like, what do I do with this information? You know, I was a little bit flustered at the time. And so what you realize in pelvic health is that people will tell even to my office manager, I mean, they tell very personal stories and personal information and because they feel like they can finally um, share that information where they weren't able to ever before. So I think you, you have to develop that, that sense that you can handle any type of information that's shared with you. I've, I, I mean, I could tell you so many stories and maybe we'll get there at some point, uh, but the night is still young here, but uh, maybe we'll get to the part about, you know, just even the discussions and the language and, and being comfortable with that component of it. Uh, but I think that that's one component, but then I am, everyone knows if they, they take courses with me, I basically read some sort of research or article at least least a few a night. I mean, I'm constantly staying on top of the research and the literature. And then on top of it, I'm interacting with a lot of the professionals like you guys and others that are on social media. So I feel like you can't just stay with looking at one article or you can't just stay with what you learned 15 years ago. I feel like it's been an integration of all these things I've just said and then continuing to talk to the patients. Um, and the other thing that's been helpful is I'm very involved in patient groups online. So I try to find out what their really, their concerns are. And I try to give them really good, valuable information that and resources because I think that I, I learn a lot about what they need through those groups as well. That's a that's a great point, Tracy. Uh, I think that um, what what you're saying is, is about staying on top of it uh, of the research about um, being comfortable with with each conversation um, and adapting that, changing that as as you learn and, and grow. And progress. I think that is kind of the biggest difference between um, a, a novice therapist in, in any field um, right. and, and an advanced practitioner is that um, they they've they're comfortable with the material enough that um, that they know how they're going to answer those questions and they 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 can then be more uh, concentrated on. Um, responding and reacting to the patient in front of them rather than thinking about, oh, my gosh, let me think about the answer to that question and, and, and how am I going to explain it to the patient so that they understand it. Um, but having a full comfort level with the material that you're – I mean, if if I had a pelvic health patient in front of me, I, I, I'm not at that level. I'm not comfortable with the, <laughs> with the material. So, so I, I'm going to look like a, a fool trying to, trying to convey things to them. And, and, and the reality is um, I'm going to be concentrating so much on trying to, to say what I want to say that I'm not going to be listening to them. Right. So if that 70-year-old patient came up to you in that scenario, that would I'm not gonna go. Be, I'm going to be red, uh, <laughs> red as a balloon. Just uh, I would have said something completely inappropriate to her right back. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Good yeah. for you, Jim. Yeah. 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 <laughs> How would you have treated her as the next step? <laughs> it probably depended on her reaction to my inappropriate comment. <laughs> the session would have been done. Yeah, it may she the, walked out, right? The question is, how do you document that? 
<laughs> what she said? Or what yeah. you quotations, said? Gene. You documented with quotations. <laughs> Come on, man. Not now with pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that would not be appropriate. Got it. Got yeah, it. yeah. It's, it's, I'm just saying, just so we draw the line, what's appropriate, what's not. We're helping the listeners. That's all. Yes. Helping the listeners. Yes, this is all for the listeners. Correct. All for the listeners. Absolutely. Do as we say, not as we do. Right. Um, so, uh, question wise, um, Urson, Urson did have a question, even though he couldn't join us. Um, he had a question for you in terms of, of pelvic health. And I do want to jump back in to, to talk about the, the stories. And before we continue with Urson's question, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Ascend Event, which is the ultimate business summit for rehab professionals. Check out ascendevent.com to get your tickets. Now, I promised you a discount code for being an awesome Therapy Insiders listener, and you get just that. Head over to ascendevent.com and type in code Therapy Insiders to get $100 off each ticket. Pretty cool, right? So, what is Ascend Event? I'm sure you've been hearing us talk about it, and Dr. Ben Fung and I are presenting at this year's event talking about digital marketing and how important it is for businesses. So we're really, really excited about it. But it's not just for business owners. It's not just for CEOs. It's not just for COOs. If you are working in a business, you should know that business because it helps you understand how everything runs. It helps the team come together. But I also wanted to learn a little bit more about Ascend and some of the speakers and what what was the genesis of it. So I grabbed Dr. Heidi Janenga, president and co-founder of WebPT, to give us a little breakdown. So Heidi, why start a business conference? Uh, you know, we really felt like when you put, and you're able to put the brightest minds in private practice PT, and even OT for that matter, together in one setting, truly incredible things can happen. So with Ascend, we wanted to create a very innovative environment that uh, you have the opportunity when you attend to discuss the ever-evolving world of business and learn from those who have kind of been there and done that, been there in your shoes for that matter, um, and that will challenge you to kind of bring your private practice to that next level. And like you said, Ascend is all about business, but this is an educational event. Um, we really feel like you're going to learn practical business tactics that you can definitely capitalize on in this, uh, this changing landscape. And first and foremost, we understand that if you're going to go to a conference, it's got, you've got to have that ROI. And so we've got nine CEUs that PTs and OTs can actually earn while they're at Ascend. We also have a lot of networking um, time during Ascend so that you can mingle with lots of different thought leaders and your colleagues to, to really um, try to gain as much as possible out of some of the strategies that you might be uh, learning within uh, the conference itself. So what kind of topics should we expect to hear at the Ascend Business Summit? Compliance changes, of course. We're going to really drive home some, some important information around outcomes, uh, new PT and OT codes, the alternative payment system. We have a great presentation with, uh, which should be somewhat controversial. We've got all the different players who have opposing sort of uh, philosophies around the alternative payment models, which I think is going to be uh, some fireworks on stage, which I, I'm really excited about. Um, and then some of the payment ref payment reform and billing issues that we're we're all struggling with right now in private practice. So. 
it's going to be an awesome event, um, and I hope to see all of you there. Thanks, Heidi. I'm look, looking forward to that payment reform discussion since I'm moderating, so there should be plenty of fireworks. Again, please check out ascendevent.com. Type in Therapy Insiders for $100 off. Look forward to seeing you there. Let's do some networking. And now let's get back to Therapy Insiders podcast and Urson's question for Tracy Sure, Some of the soft skills that you've developed. This doesn't involve um, his symptoms, does it? This does not involve his symptoms. It's not for a friend, in quotes. Yeah. This, is not for, this is not for a friend. Dear Tracy. Um, no, no, not one of those segments. Okay. Um, it is kind of a weird transition when we're going from, from this woman to Urson's questions, but it, it had to happen at some point. Um, so Urson asked, um, and he, he referenced somebody that, I forgot in the beginning, Julie Weeb, or as he calls her, Weeby. Okay. Um, he wanted me to ask you, what do you think of Julie's no hands on or in approach to pelvic health? Yeah, I think I, I actually love this question too, because, you know, there's some people, I think this is a, you'll see this across all types of physical therapy. There's always extremes and there's always these pendulum swinging where, you know, it's only just bio or only psychosocial. And then you have this, you have the gold standard is you have to touch a patient, you have to touch their pelvic floor. And then the others that are on the athletic side of things that are treating pelvic floor and pelvic health and haven't touched a patient at all. And they're doing much more functional things. And I think Julie would agree with this too. I come to the conclusion that it really depends on the needs of the patient. I mean, if if someone's athletic and they've got stress urinary incontinence when they're jumping and you know, in an ideal situation, I do want to see what their pelvic floor looks like, feels like, because that is more of a gold standard. And it may help me to understand, do they have a major prolapse? Um, do they have something going on that would actually be almost like a red flag or something that I would say you're not a, you're not ready for this kind of higher level activity just yet. doesn't mean they can't ever do it, but it may make me say maybe they need a pessary or something else first. So there are a lot of things that we get a, when we a, do a, what are we? a pessary, which is something that it's basically like a, you could think of it as a type of um, orthotic type of device that would go inside vaginally. And it essentially holds up the organs a little bit. And there's different types for the kind of prolapse that a woman would have. So um, it can be actually a way to put things into a better position and stabilize it so that when you're lifting heavy or jumping or running, there's more basically a, a, a block or a some sort of support there. Is, it, is, that a, is that a training tool or is that put in... Oh, that's Surgical. another fun conversation in which um, currently in the U.S., physical therapists don't fit these. These are done by primarily urogynecologists, and there's a large lack of this education and um, availability for patients who would really be appropriate for it. Um, and, and, and even like a few years ago, some of the urogynecologists would say that women couldn't even use pessaries if they were sexually active, which we now know is not true. I mean, you can take a pessary out and put it back in. So even just for athletic events. So it's silly that we would say you're precluded. You cannot use one because you're, you're sexually active. So in, in places like Australia, we have physical therapists that actually fit these. And it's very common to see that they work alongside nurses and physicians in fitting these. And so they have better access for their athletes. And so we're in, in large conversations right now about this and seeing how can physical therapists play a role in this and is there a way for us to get involved. Um, we're certainly not going to deal with the medical aspects if there's skin breakdown or hormonal issues, but we can certainly be a part of it. We can actually assist. And we're, we're talking right now with APTA and some other groups about how we can be more involved. But that was an aside. Um, I forgot where we were. Back, back to oh, no back hands. To Julie and hands off. 
Hands so, off. So I think that still in an, I, I still tend to say in an ideal world, yes, it would be great to do a baseline screening. It could be a 10, 15 minute screening even, just something of a baseline to see where they are because I think hands-on is very valuable. However, I would not discount the many orthopedic and women's health therapists out there who th there aren't enough of us as the ones that are doing hands-on pelvic floor work that we can catch and help so many women out there in exercise environments, in high-level intensity environments, in orthopedic realms that would still benefit from men much of the education and training that would go along with that without ever having to put your hands on them. So there could be like a quick screening questionnaire to make sure they don't fit any of the type of red flags or yellow flags. But for the most part, I think there's a place for someone like Julie Weeb and those that are really good at doing this or even those that want to learn to be better and more proficient at it. So to say that no one should, you know, everyone should have to have a pelvic floor screening is probably too much of an extreme. Yeah, I think it's 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 a great transition and and helps bring in some people uh, that might have not otherwise have done it. Um, my my wife, we just had our second kid. Um, Zoe's four months old now, and my wife had a C-section this time around. And obviously things are, were a little bit different. I learned a ton. And um, Julie was kind enough to, to give Jamie one of her courses to do um, somewhat early on. And Jamie went through it, you know, watched the videos. And it, it, was, it was cool to see the, the awareness come back a little bit, but also the confidence, the fear avoidance goes down a little bit. And it, it, it's, it's cool to see that how education and some, some guidance, even through video, and, and Julie was really kind enough to, to help out and give some tips. But um, just, just to see that for, for somebody that, that's a lot closer, as close as we want to be to our patients, we don't really want to be that close, right? <laughs> it's, it's still not that, you know, professional. We, we have that some kind of level. Right. Um, but it's cool to see a, a loved one benefit from that because it, I think you, you get to see and experience something that you, you usually don't from your world that you live in, from your professional world. It's true. And actually, you bring up a good point, which is a segue into a, a different little area here, but I think this is important too, is I've been so focused on on um, clinician education, physicians, and PTs, but actually, I really try to shift a lot of focus now on patient education and other professional education. And the reason is um, I got involved in something called MUTU, and essentially MUTU is a program that my friend Wendy Powell started, and it's all about postpartum, and it's an exercise program for postpartum. So it's basically in postnatal period. There's the one program she has is for 12 weeks. And what I realize is she has thousands and thousands of followers who don't ever access or don't go to physical therapists typically. And I've become now a medical advisor for her. And what's great about that is what I found in this training, and now I've done something called Mutu Pro, where we're now professionals with it, um, is that we're reaching a whole different segment of people that didn't even know that pelvic floor phys physical therapy existed. And so it's opened up this whole world where we can all work together. And, and they're so excited to know that there's a physical therapist involved, but I'm training a lot of the fitness professionals to look for things and be involved even on a level where they don't, again, don't have to touch, but they can still look for signs or see if there's a problem. And then now they know that they can refer to a pelvic physical therapist for further evaluation. So I think we're really tapping into a larger market than just thinking it has to be from a physician referral or the patient has to learn that they better see a pelvic or physical therapist first. We've got to really reach the fitness professionals and the orthopedic 
professionals as well in the PT world. Yeah, Tracy, I was reading, um, I was reading some of your Mewtwo site and, um, I think, I think it, it's a great little narrative on there, um, about listening to your body. Uh, and I think you make some, some great points, um, because I think that, uh, I, and I, I know from my experience as well, um, as, uh, we're seven weeks, my wife's seven weeks out of having ha- our first, um, and <laughs> so babies everywhere. Yeah. Babies everywhere. Um, and yeah, I, I think, um, at least her, she's, she's come out and, and with a lot of questions, um, and really, uh, not a lot of answers. And, and so, and, and so, um, that getting back into activities when, when is right, when, uh, how, how fast do you go? Um, I think that, uh, I like, I like the approach that, that you guys are, are promoting on your website with, uh, with, with some instruction, but, but to, to focus on listening to your body. I think that that's a huge thing that, um, sometimes other people, your goals and, and your expectations of, of what you used to do, uh, get in the way of that. Right. And I, and actually what we started to do is I now have this whole list of most frequently asked questions that a lot of women are asking postnatally in terms of um, whether they've had a C-section or vaginal delivery is what what's coming up as the most in terms of exercise. And it's been fascinating to see the same kinds of questions come up and they're just not reaching necessarily the pelvic floor specialist. So we're trying to do more educational types of videos and audio on, on what you can do so that we can reach it. And then the nice thing is we can then promote pelvic physical therapy. We can promote physical therapy in general and say, if you're still having symptoms or you're still having issues, you can see your physician for these kinds of things, but you can also definitely reach out to a pelvic floor physical therapist or, or a physical therapist in your area that can help you with this. So it's, it's really just been a nice shift to focus on getting to the patients and not just um, doing so much for clinicians. Nice. Well, speaking of nice shifts, let's let's shift gears a little bit, and um, let's talk about the business and the um, kind of your your day to day breakdown of how you balance everything. Um, where where is your career taking you lately, and how's the how's the you, you run a cash based practice, right? Right. So it was a, it was kind of a ominous, scary thing at first because I had no idea how it was going to go. And yes, there were people doing it, but I'm stubborn and wanted to figure it out on my own as well and, and just see how it would when go. When did you start? Um, it's been about three and a half years now. I started in January of 2013. And prior to that, I had started women's health and and pelvic health programs at different hospitals. So I was always in a hospital, outpatient hospital environment. So this was the first time I essentially opened up my own doors and started out cash-based and out-of-network from the start. And 
And uh, what I did d drastically differently, and I know, you know, in terms of financially, I'm sure I could do a lot better. And that just wasn't as much of a goal for me initially. It was more patient time. And and so what I do is I do a two-hour evaluation. And then, uh, and many of my patients come from not just out of out of town, but they also come from out of state or out of country. So I wanted a long longer evaluation time. And then my, my treatments can be up to an hour and 15 minutes. And then some patients even choose to do a complex treatment, which can go any, you know, up to an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes. So I've essentially set up a program that allows, and, and the thing is, it's not manual therapy as a primary. It could be, but it's so much on patient education. And I can take the time, I can document for their physicians or their other healthcare providers. I have a lot of time and I don't feel stressed. It's, it's a very nice pace to the day. How did you set up your practice and what 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 has evolved over the last three years? And if, if you if you don't mind sharing, like, how did you come up with your prices? Did you change your prices? Has there been evolution? How do you get customers or patients? What, what has how's that business growth been? Yeah. So we talked about, we were talking a little bit about sometimes when people talk about the success of their practices, it sounds like it's just amazing. Like there's an amazing growth and wow, everything's wonderful. And I would say every year I've had major growth and I've had other therapists work with me and we've had some great growth, but I will tell you that when I started out, it was, it, it essentially didn't go very smoothly at all at first. Um, I had a few patients on my schedule. I wasn't necessarily going to make, you know, the budget I'd set. And I was charging literally at least half of what I'm charging now. So what happened is I thought, you know, I could charge a certain amount and my overhead was relatively low. I had just a small office with two treatment rooms and a waiting area and I got a really great price on it. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to charge a certain amount and it'll all just work out. But what I realized is that the physicians, though they loved me and they wanted to refer to me, they weren't necessarily going to be my, my top referrals anymore, my top referral sources anymore. Um, it was a huge shift to realize that I could market right to the patients and word of mouth and other healthcare practitioners who were going to be actually in, in online that were going to be driving my business. And so what happened was I realized I had to increase prices and I was nervous because I didn't even have a full schedule yet. So here I was realizing this and not where I wanted to be. But um, within a few months, I actually started having a wait list, believe it or not. And even within um, started increasing some prices after that, shortly after that. And what I realized is that there are certain people I will never see based on my price point. But those that really want to get in to see me will find a way and then we work on it. We work out a schedule for them. Yeah, I think that's that's great. It, it's knowing your your audience, knowing your target audience. Um, I, I know there, there's been a lot of debates on on cash PT and versus insurance versus all kinds of different payments, and the the conversation always becoming, well, cash PT is is not the solution for for long term. And I'm like, that that's that's idiotic. The solution is not one fix. The solution is multiple options for multiple customers. That that's the solution. It's it's giving people options to choose what works best for them. And if this works best for them, obviously it works best for enough people that you have a wait list. Right. And so now what's happened is, and this is again where it's the good, bad and the ugly, is that 
I, I have a three month wait list typically at any time. And what happens is I really, I think I'm missing a segment of a population that I really think would benefit from seeing me, but they just, because of a price point, because they can't go through insurance, I won't ever see them. They will typically go somewhere else. And that's just, I just have to understand. I won't see those people, but those that make it to me that still then say, well, I'd like to go through insurance. What else can I do? I 100% work with them on why don't you, if you want to, you can come see me once in a while and you can also work with another therapist and I give them other therapist names. Um, I may say after this evaluation, you have more information. Now you can go ahead and go somewhere else. I'm very, I'm, I'm transparent and I'm open and I try to create a community feeling. I never make it just about my business and what's been fascinating. And I'm sure others have shared this as well, because I do that. I've had patients that say, I really appreciate it. And I think I'll just stay with you anyway. So I, I, I give them lots of different options. I don't make it all about my practice and I try to do what's best for them, not just my own business. Yeah, people love transparency. People love when you're when you're honest with them and like people know. Yeah. You know, pe- people are not most people are not idiots. That's there's there's plenty of idiots, but most most people are at least uh, intuitive to an extent. Even if they're an idiot, you can be an intuitive idiot, um, and that they realize that what what you're saying is in their best interest. If you t- if you strip away the financial barriers and that trans transactory um, you know, barrier that we have, or um, that kind of gateway, essentially, that's the customer and and the um, the business. Once once we get rid of that, and it's person to person, and right. they they know that you're generally trying to help them. Most people are willing to find a way to pay for that. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's something that I still struggle with. I think I would be lying. And I think a lot of therapists still have that mentality, like that whole idea that we don't even want to charge for a TheraBand or anything. And I, I go through that sometimes where I say, you know, I'm charging a certain amount and gosh, it just seems like so much for that person. But, you know, on the flip side of it, I've had patients who have actually written a check for double the amount and said, this is how much this was worth for me. Why aren't you charging more? So it's, you know, it's, it's their value. And I've found that it's not always the people that have the most money that seek out these services. It's those that really are, are looking for the right person to help them and facilitate their treatment. And they're tired of just getting the runaround or, you know, or just not getting complete care. And so they're willing to pay for it. But again, I try not to just prey on that either. I'm very big about saying what would work with your budget. And let me tell you what I recommend. And then we work together on a plan. So it's definitely not just one sided where I say you have to come in once a week or twice a week. And that's just the only way it's going to work. I I definitely, we set out a plan together. And again, I think that works the best long term. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, when when you tell people what what you think realistically like everybody's different and in the past i've i've had patients that got better in this amount of time but you are not past patients so you kind of have to go day by day essentially or week by week and and see how it goes i think that that's that's very realistic but I feel like a lot of I've heard a lot of similar stories. I get a lot of emails about young PTs or, or PT students or PTs that have been practicing that want to get into business and they, they, they have this fear of getting into it. But they also have this this uncomfortable um, sense of selling and, and talking about cost. And it, the, the irony is that 
most people are so used to that because in any other business is the transaction happens up front people know the cost they know what 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 to expect and because we're so insecure and uncomfortable about talking about that it, we create an uncomfortable environment versus just being up front and saying look this is what it's going to cost this is what we're thinking this is how we can approach this in a financial way just get it out the way and people go okay great now i know and move, and they either say yes, no, or or how do we do something else and, and take the conversation in a different direction. But if you float around this kind of passive, aggressive, fearful state with, with the financial business side of it, it makes everybody uncomfortable. Right. And I've actually worked closely with my office manager to make sure the verbiage, even from the start, has ha, has these elements in it. And she's fantastic. A shout out to Alma. And, and what Al, Alma's actually a DPT student. So that's the nice thing, too, is that she's in, in PT school. So she sees the clinical side as well. And I, she goes to a lot of the courses that I teach. So she's seeing both sides. And what, you know, what she knows is that we're already trying to do a sale, but not in a, in, in some sort of awful way. It's, it's already telling them, we understand what's going on. We're going to work with you. This is not just to get you in the door. We, we do a lot of, um, good conversation and, and patients have told me that's the best interaction they've ever had with a front desk person at any medical office they've ever been to. So I already know she's doing, she's part of that sale. She's making them feel comfortable before they even come in the door. And then by the time they're with me, I, I make it very clear. I say something depending on their circumstance, but I may say something along the lines of it. In your case, it seems like we would know within four to six visits, if you're doing, if you're on the right track with what we're doing, if we're on the right track. So I say after that, we have a few options. One is to see if there's someone else that we can also pair you with that would be more appropriate. Two, we change our approach and what we're doing. Um, or three, we continue on because we think it's still helping. It just may be taking longer. So I try to tell them that we should know within a certain amount of visits instead of just leading them on. And that's what a lot of times we do, particularly in insurance-based, is I feel like I see therapists that are seeing patients one, two, three years later. And I wonder, are they really changing their approach or are they doing the same exact thing each time? And because it's cash based, I'm very, I'm very aware of that. And I want to make sure it's a good experience every single time they come in. It's a, it's a good experience and it's valuable, right? Like the, these people after they pay, not only do they not have buyer's remorse, but they are so incredibly happy with the experience that they don't care. They don't think about, Oh, I just spent this much money. They think about, wow, I can't wait to tell somebody and, and tell to bring somebody in because there's the, this this factor of pride. That's what word of mouth comes from, right? You, people right. tell other people because they want to feel like they help them and that they leverage this relationship. Right. And, and uh, that that's not going to happen if they think that they're getting ripped off. Right. And then the biggest compliment to me is a lot of these physicians that used to refer to me when I was in the hospital environment, they said, well, my patients aren't really probably going to go to you because now that you're cash-based and, you know, we're, they're used to using insurance. What they do now is they tell their patients, I mean, I've heard it over and over again, they'll say, I don't care, figure out a way. I want you to see this person no matter what you have to do, even just one visit, get in there. So they're now, they've kind of understood the difference of what I'm trying to do. And it doesn't discount from anything that any other therapists are doing. It's just nice to see that they also see a value in that and what I'm doing. And I've, I can't, I probably have at least two or three physicians on my schedule a week as well. So I'm seeing a lot of the physicians as well near and near and far. So it's nice to see that support and they get it as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. How many hours a week are you treating? 
Um, that's a good question. I don't, I don't necessarily do it on hours because like I said, I could treat, I could treat a patient for two hours at a time. So, it, you know, to say it's five hours, it may not be five patients, if that makes sense. It's, it's kind of, it depends. But what I've done is I, I started at, um, when I initially started, it was basically five days a week, whatever. I mean, I was there till 10 o'clock at night if someone, 11 o'clock at night, whatever someone wanted, I did. I would jump when they wanted me to jump because I was just trying to build up a base. So at some point I said, this is ridiculous. I've got to now set boundaries. And I, another big business tip is that you do what you can at the beginning. And that whole, you know, Gary uh, Vaynerchuk thing of just hustle, hustle. I was hustling a lot, but then now talking about the life shout balance. Out Gary. Yeah. Shout out to Gary. Um, at some point you just say, Hey, I need to, I need to back this down and have, I, I just have to set a boundary. If, you know, I had patients that were attorneys and that would say, can I come in at eight o'clock at night? And I'd say, sure. And they'd want a two hour appointment or something. And it was, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not staying till 10 o'clock when, you know, the buildings it's dark and everything. It's just, I'm not doing that anymore. Because so, you want a work life balance. That's right. And so, um, to answer your question, I went from doing that to then transitioning to just regular four or five day weeks where it was just regular hours where now, um, when I have someone helping me and this is another whole story, but I've, I've dropped down to three days a week. Um, and I'll do full days, three days a week of seeing patients because I'm working on so many other projects and teaching as well. And I travel. So it's between three to three and a half days of in, in clinic right now. Got it. So when, when you were kind of going through the hustle and obviously you're still working a good bit with everything you're doing, um, what have you found about the balance? What have you learned and um, some of the struggles that that you've you realized occur with owning a balance uh, business and and you you have you have kids right? Yeah, I do have I do have a son who's nine son. and um, you know that's, that's how I initially reached out for this podcast as you posted something really funny about your son. I can't remember <laughs> what it was, but it was right after we did that initial podcast with Jeff on work life balance and somebody's like, oh, you should have a woman's perspective, and it was like you popped up right away. I was like, oh, we got to chat. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, so my son he's he's nine, but he's pretty much I think figured out the whole world, and I saw an article actually today that was like an on the onion it was a funny satire article about um kids that are in fifth grade that are deciding to take a year off now like a you know a study abroad or a year off it was kind of a joke but that's yeah, actually it's what, way before then now like joe joe's son pricing is six weeks old he's already taken like what four weeks off joe <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. They're starting them even earlier, but I'm convinced Way I'm sure that my son any minute now is going to say, I, I've decided I'm going to do, you know, a study abroad next year and I'm going to take some time off. And yeah, so I'm, I'm adjusting nice. to all that. But, um, yeah, I, I think that there's, there's definitely a balance with all of that. And what I would say, this is what I would say is, and I think you guys would agree with this too, is that it's not like the workload. My biggest difference is when I was working that I had to at a salary job, as a manager of a pelvic health program that I started, I had to be there at least 40 hours. And then if I worked more, that was fine. But I essentially had to be there at least 40 hours and they were structured and it was, it was a lot of work, but then I could essentially go home and I still did some stuff at home, but it was different. Now what it is, is it's basically, and I know this sounds so cliche, but it's creating the life you want, but it doesn't necessarily mean the hours are, are less yet. I mean, hopefully they will be at some point, but I'm still putting in a lot of hours actually more 
But as I was saying, I see three, let's say I see three days worth of patients, but the rest of the week, those other four days, I'm doing something else with my business or courses or preparing things that are going to help me down the line. But it's, it's, I get to create that a little bit more of what I want. I can wake up early. I can stay up late. So it doesn't, the work doesn't go away. It's just that if I want to go to my son's soccer game, I can take that four hours, you know, that window three to four hours and then come back and do some more work or I can decide that's it. I'm just going to hang out with him that night. So you just have to really, you have to be more responsible with your time instead of clocking in and clocking out. It's different work. It's, 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 it's not done. It's just different. Right. And for me, that's, I mean, I thrive better in that environment where I know what I want to create and I want it done in five months. It may take me eight, but I, I really have a good sense of where I'm going with my projects. It's just, you know, time-wise, it can be a little bit challenging, and, and there's, there's roadblocks sometimes and financial things as well that get in the way. But it's exciting for me. I, I love that excitement of knowing that it's not just seeing patients every day. I'm actually creating something that will help many more patients in, at some point in the future, not just the patients I see. Yeah, that, that's huge. Obviously, that that is that is working in a business, but it's also creating a business, right? That, that a lot of people don't, don't see that they don't understand, especially in cash PT. A lot of, a lot of times I hear, well, yeah, I own my own business and yeah, technically you do, but you're also working for your business. You're an employee. Right. Um, you you just, you own the entity. Um, and right. I think that that's a big distinction that a, a lot of people don't understand is when you own a business, you and everybody else works for this business. You are the leader of it. Um, and that, that, that's a tough, that's a tough thing. That's a tough thing to do a lot of times, but the flexibility, I I agree is, is huge to to know that even though you're working 12 to to 18 hours, it's, you can adjust those hours. Well, and the other thing that's hard too, is that it's short term versus long term, and it's a job versus a business, like you're saying. So short term, I could make probably double what I'm making if I worked five days a week, stayed longer hours and just saw patients and put all this other stuff aside. And five to eight years from now, I'd have a good amount of chunk of money. And, you know, that's one option to just keep doing that. And I've heard of people who own solo practice practices, and that's what they do. They go five days in, they see eight, nine, you know, nine, 10 patients a day, and they have a steady income and they're good. But I think that's short term in the sense that for me, long term, I want to develop um, things that are online courses. I want to develop more where we have an outreach reach where we're teaching courses, we're hosting courses, we're doing more to reach patients with their, with courses for them. There's a lot more that I want to do. So right now I'm taking a financial hit because I, I'm not seeing the most amount of patients that I can see. I have a three month wait list, but I can't, I'm purposely not seeing all of them in the way, in a timely way so that I can do these other projects. So I'm doing a lot of work without seeing the true fruits just yet. But the idea is that you're creating something that hopefully long-term is, is going to create a, not only a good profit, but also reach many more people than you would just with your own hands daily. It's, it's short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. And right. there, there's no other way around it. I've never spoken to a business owner or an entrepreneur that, that told me, yeah, I didn't sacrifice. It was just completely smooth sailing from the start and only got easier. Like that, nobody ever says that. And if they do, they're just full of shit. <laughs> right. And and the other thing too, the hard part, and this is where I've really struggled, again, from a struggle, I, I try to keep it real, is that... 
I, there's the whole business systems, which is very different than your website system and your other systems you're doing. So it's multiple systems you're trying to manage and they're very different. And so I've been guilty of, you know, I've had a therapist working for me and we've had systems in place, but then I'm trying to work on other things, but then suddenly she didn't, you know, there was something missing with the system and, and it didn't go very smoothly. And so I've got to turn my attention to improving the system at my business at the, at the, the physical therapy location. And then I have to take away time from doing the system of something else that I'm doing. So it's creating systems for everything that takes a long time. And that's a challenge for me. And that's what I'm working on. So do you have other therapists working for you now, Tracy? I do. And, and that's been, again, I, there's so much we can talk about about this because I've been experimenting. Um, I actually was on a podcast with um, Jared Carter, who does a lot with... Um, with, uh, you know, cash based stuff. And, and we had a long conversation about this. And what happened is I had, and this is the, again, when we talk about good, bad and ugly, I've, I've had different attempts at trying to hire people on, but because I was cash, I talked to other therapists who were cash based. And they said that some of them took out loans to be able to hire someone. Some of them borrowed, let's say they were in a marriage and they said, okay, we're going to work together and, and pull $40,000 or something and hire someone and, and, and train them. And then we'll make profit on the back end at some point. I, I didn't have that luxury. I didn't want to take out a loan. I didn't want to do it. So I've been working more with therapists on, on percentage based and that sort of thing. Um, and the two challenges that I've run into, which is going to be very common for most um, students coming out, is that one of them was as a newer student. She was a fantastic therapist, but she said ultimately she wanted everything. She wanted the 401k. She wanted all the benefits. And we had a great transparent relationship where we talked about it up front. And she essentially said, I really need to, for a while, few years, I'm going to have to just work in that environment to pay back my loans. And so that was just the reality of it. And then I have another therapist who's also fantastic, who's been working for me for a while now for about a year, and she's great. And same, the problem is that when she has a cancel, because she's on a percentage basis that affects her bottom line. And so we've been figuring out ways to improve that for her. Um, and, and that's been a challenge too. So it's, I think that it's challenging when you figure out the structure and the systems in place, including your staff and what you do with them. I pay my, um, I pay the, the office manager hourly, but for a therapist, I've had to do more of a percentage based and that's been good and bad. I mean, it's, it's had its ups and downs. Right. See, this is a really interesting conversation for me. Um, it's one of the things that I've always, uh, said about cash-based PT. I, I feel like it's, it's, uh, hard to scale, mm-hmm. um, uh, because you, you are, um, you are the draw. Right. And you're you, you, you and you can try to you can try to create uh, that buzz for somebody else. But the reality is that um, they 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 have to step up and, and, and be willing to do do that, do all the work and put in all the time that you've put in to develop those relationships so that they build that book of business for themselves. You can't. You can you can send them uh, people that are willing to to see somebody else, but for the most part, uh, those people want they they want what they want, and that's you. Right, and <laughs> um, we even have a little we have a little bit of a staggered um, scaling of of payments, so I'm a little bit more expensive in some ways. So that was almost like a way to say well, you can get in sooner and it'll be less expensive. But then you start to get concerned: are they thinking then we're cheapening it their their experience, or it's not as good? And and so there's all these variables you're playing with, and that's exactly what happened. Is I realized the next person that I hire, they really have to be business minded, and I don't even mind considering some sort of um, a type of a partnership 
leadership or something else in the future. But it's a totally different mindset than the typical where you come into your work, you see a patient, you leave. It has to be, yeah. like you said, someone who's a go-getter, who's got a business mind. And then when Jared and I talked, it was interesting because he we said, we said the problem is if they have a business mind, why wouldn't they just start their own practice? And I think the point is, is that you you have to have the trust that they want to stay with you and they want to keep growing. But certainly if they if they at some point want to go do their own thing, then, you, you know, that's that's what you you just have to take that chance at some point. Well, essentially, it needs it needs to be a good enough deal for for both parties that that you're um, you're in a way uh sharing sharing uh resources right you you're sh- you're sharing the expenses of uh of the business <laughs> um, right exactly w- when it when it gets to that point when you talk about partnership but uh, when when you said <laughs> when you said that uh you know y- your therapist now you know when they have a cancellation it affects their bottom line i mean that's that's you you want them to feel that a little bit (laughs) well and that that point is well taken in that if they if the person cancels so i have a 24-hour cancellation policy and we do have a charge and for the most part i i have a zero percent no show cancellation rate i mean i feel because even if someone cancels 24 48 hours ahead of time i have someone else i can put right in the spot so my schedule is pretty much always full when i want it to be once in a while you have a spot but for the most part it's full now you have someone that's ramping up their schedule. She's at a disadvantage because if someone cancels even 48 hours ahead of time, we still may not be able to fill that slot. So it affects me and it affects her. But what I found is that some therapists are like, oh man, I'm losing money. Like you said, instead of thinking, okay, what can I do during that time? Maybe I'll still come in and make some phone calls or I'll do something else to be proactive. Take ownership of it. Exactly. Make, and, make, and that's- make promotional calls. Right. Do a, do a doctor visit. Do something. Take ownership of it and and, uh, and build for for the future. I, I think that's it. It's a very it's a very uh, different mindset. Ownership or or um, you know self employed versus uh, staff. Right. And, and on that note, because so it turns out that a lot of patients I get are actually from my blog, the, the pelvic guru blog that I have pelvicguru.com. So I get patients from all over the country and the world. And I've even offered, I mean, now anyone that works for me, if they want to do a blog article, whether it's on my local, the share pelvic um, website or the pelvicguru.com website, I think that's a huge way to get patients, you know, get your name out there, start getting information out there. I'm more than willing to have someone step up and say, let me do some blog articles, those sorts of things. So it's just, you, you know, it does take, I'm, I'm happy to cultivate that. But like you said, you also need someone that understands it's more than just showing up and seeing a patient. Love it. Love it. So let's, let's finish up where we started kind of on the, um, on the work-life balance angle. You, um, obviously going through and growing your business. Um, do you, do you feel like, and obviously that this is very much kind of theoretical, um, opinion, but do you feel like there, there's a huge difference in work-life balance between women and men? Um, the, 
The interesting part was, I think they're inherently, like when you think about it just from a PC correct way, it really shouldn't be. There shouldn't be a difference. But like I was saying, when you actually look at the statistics and how much housework and, and childcare that women are typically doing um, and, and pregnancy and those sorts of things, it turns out there is actually an imbalance in that inherently. And um, one of the things that came up in the leadership meeting that really struck a chord with me, and we talked about it a lot, is there was a guy that was in the room for this when we did a, it was leadership for women and he st he stood up and he said I really want to hire some good people in my in my company we're expanding my company and it requires 10 to 12 hours of work a day for anyone that I hire as a manager and he said the problem is I get a lot of men who apply for this job but I'm not getting any women applying for this job and I thought that was interesting that because it requires 10 to 12 hours a day. So my question to him was, can you be flexible on the hours? Meaning, can it be that it's seven hours and then they can leave and finish, you know, five more hours at home if they want to? Because someone may have, you know, the woman may, in this case, a woman may want to pick up their child or have other duties that they want to take care of and then later on come back and do some more work. It's not that they're incapable or that they don't want to work. It's just it may need a different kind of look or feel in, in the environment. And he said, I never even thought about that. We just assumed that they would stay and work 10 to 12 hours straight. Um, initially. And, you know, it made him realize that maybe they could flex on time and the way they present it, and that may make it more appealing for women. I think it makes it more appealing for everybody, don't you? Yeah, actually, actually, it's funny to say that because it is appealing for everyone, and and that's where it gets into this. You know, I, I usually try to be very politically correct, and I am, but I think that the way he presented it was that he had all these men that were applying, but no women at all, and they wanted to have it more balanced. So that's where that took into. But yes, absolutely, and they actually the came back around and say the men were we, too we're stupid too to stupid. ask for it. They, <laughs> right? They, <laughs> they just. Okay. Yeah. yeah so just in the end, you're in. Right. They, they did end up saying that they were like, oh, yeah, that would be good for us, too. <laughs> but I think maybe in our culture, and this could be in a whole interesting debate in and of itself, but I think maybe in our culture, it's set up that men are just, it's this idea that they just work the amount of hours and they're just at work where women are supposed to have some more of these other, other things that they do at home. And I'm not saying that's correct. I'm just saying that I think that's how our, our, we are frame, our framework is in some ways still. And so yeah, cultural assumptions for sure. Cultural and, you know, there's obviously going to be outliers in both of those situations, but it's, it's definitely still, it's, it was fascinating conversation because he said, I cannot find any women that are interested in this position and yet pts dominate i mean are, are the majority of of our females are women so it's it's why it's is there this, most of healthcare right well, right most so of why is it that in these top positions he's looking for top managers of a big company they want to hire 10 people and not a single woman has applied so there's he was really curious like truly was asking why is this happening and i mean it, to me it was so obvious when you when you advertise a job that requires that much you know it just it, it just does not appeal um for the way we we're set up currently yeah yeah i, I think that's fair um i i don't even, i don't believe in a balance i don't think that that really exists i think it's a spectrum it, it's it's a seesaw that, that that goes back and forth that that's never in balance it's just what's necessary at the time and um i think we make we make decisions and it's obviously a lot easier with uh with a support system if you have it it's it's everyone's unique in their in their own in their own lives and in their families and, and how that works and sometimes the bubble bursts and families fall apart because of stuff like that if if you 
if you value the the job and your career and, and honestly if you most times if you're happier doing that than you are with the family then you go to, to, to an extreme and anytime you go to any extremes you you're very much blind to to compromises and and when you have to come back from it if you live on an extreme you're only going to get hurt Oh yeah. And in talking about the, the good, bad and the ugly again, as I say, it's like there, there are times when I actually had so much that had to get done in a certain deadline. I had this big um, event that I was putting on and I took on way too much and I didn't realize it when I started out and it ended up being a wonderful success. But I basically took my son to my parents' house, you know, for two days and I was just like, please, I need, I desperately need help. But I knew that I couldn't keep doing that sort of thing. I couldn't keep a, a lifestyle up like that where, you know, I was neglecting him so much just to focus on the business it just you can't you know there is that part of balance but you're right it is a spectrum where other weeks may not look exactly like that and then other weeks may look totally different where it looks like I'm just hanging out you know at the beach with my with my son and not doing any work so I think there's a, a really it is a spectrum for sure and the, and the consensus seems to be is that when you when you do have the moments be present in the moments right. that it's not necessarily always the the quantity it's it's the quality of the time and that that's so true and I, I have to catch myself a lot that even when I'm quote-unquote not working but I'm still checking my phone or if I'm playing with my son and I'm um, pulling out my phone and then responding and doing that like I catch myself going like and I think like what what is he thinking now what what is his perception of me and it, it's it's hard and but when I do that it's it's kind of it kind of it's kind of heartbreaking a little bit Right. But now my problem is that my son, he's the one that wants to be on the iPad all the time and stuff. And I'm, I'm like, talk to me, listen to me. You know, I'm fighting he over comes back around. Right. He, you know, I'm, I'm present and he's, you know, wanting to do that stuff. So yeah, it's, it, I mean that all the stuff we're talking about, I feel like, you know, obviously in this amount of time, we're just touching the surface. There's like this other, so many nuances and, and segues we can go on for all the stuff. Cause it's, it is, it's fascinating topics. And I don't think anyone gets it a hundred percent and it's not a judgment call. It's just like you said, what you can do within your own life and what works. Um, and each month, maybe okay, a little bit different. Fine. fine. We're going to bring you back on <laughs> and keep talking deal. Deal. Yes. You didn't have to. You didn't have to work that hard to come back on. We would love to have you back on. Yeah, we need um, to talk about all the crazy pelvic health stuff too. So. I know we only talked a little bit, of, a little bit of the one, one crazy pelvic health person with um with something up her. Um, anyway, more uh, stories to come. More stories to come. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. In the in the interim, where can uh, where can people find you if they want to reach out, if they want to learn more? Mm-hmm. Where where's all the good stuff? So essentially, I have things set up, and I don't know if this is the the best way to go about it, but I'm learning as I go along. Um, more of an, the international blog that I have, which is actually getting revamped as we speak, and it'll have a new look in about two or three months. But that's pelvicguru.com, um, and it's actually the antithesis of a guru site. I actually try to bring on Ooh, a lot of different word. experts, and it is by far not me just trying to, to say my own opinions. It's definitely, I bring in lots of different people and I want to make it very educational and resourceful. So yeah, so pelvicguru.com and apparently that gets seen by over 200 countries and it's, it's quite, um, it's gone all over the place. And then my more local practice in Orlando, Florida is sharepelvic.com and that's S H E R P E L V I C.com. So I have, those are the two primary, uh, ways. And then we, I have Facebook pages and, and of course you, you, you guys know about Twitter as well that I'm on there. 
What's uh, what's your Twitter handle and what's it's, the Facebook page? Um, the Twitter handle is pelvicguru1 at gmail. Uh, not at gmail. Pelvicguru1 is the Twitter handle because I guess Why there was one? already a pelvic guru. Um, uh, yeah, I know, right? Uh, it's a little bit tough to take at first. Well, um, this way you say you're the number one pelvic guru. Right, so right. It, it looks like I meant to, right, like I was saying I'm number one, right? So pelvic guru one. And then the Facebook page is literally just pelvic guru. And then I also have my uh, Facebook page for my practice is share pelvic, S-H-E-R. So those are the ways to connect. And I, and as you guys know, I'm really involved in social media and I feel like it's, it's for me personally, I've loved and professionally, I've loved connecting with so many professionals and I learned so much from everyone. So for me, it's been really enriching in that way. Awesome. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for taking the time today. We'll definitely get you back and, and delve into more of the nuances of work-life balance and, and hear some more of the uh the pelvic the pelvic stories the war stories <laughs> right i have some some really good ones somewhere in there i, I always joke i should just, i should write a book one day about just the stories Closing that thoughts? You should. yeah i appreciate you coming coming on tonight tracy i i think uh you you had some some great insights uh for our listeners um about your journey, about pelvic health, and uh, about the balance. So um, we'd love to talk to you again. Awesome. And I guess my closing thought would be to just remind everyone out there, uh, the pelvic, not pelvic, the PT professionals out there that many of your patients are pelvic health patients that need that support, but you may be missing them. So, it, you know, if I can just remind them to just remember to ask certain questions and know how, know some referral sources that you can get to, to, if you don't feel comfortable with it, know that they may need some more pelvic health or, um, resources or treatment. They just may not know that that's available. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Therapy Insiders Podcast with guest Tracy Share. We really enjoyed recording this conversation. Uh, I think you'll get a lot out of it. Some pretty good, uh, some pretty good stories, and we'll definitely get Tracy back on for another episode or two. Check out updocmedia.com. Check out the blog, especially. We've got some really cool articles that we're posting, as well as some videos. A recent one we did, top five tips for employing millennials. We got some data-backed research advice for for what millennials are looking for in a job to really lower that turnover and help you hire better because that's an issue that we keep hearing about from a lot of businesses. And uh, as always, thank you for listening. Head over to iTunes, type in Therapy Insiders. Please leave us a review. It helps us out a ton. And we'll catch you on the next episode.